Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. And so this morning we're going to continue in our series of James, uh, the series of Faith Does. And um, this morning we are going to see that this, this chapter, this chunk in chapter 2, is going to be one of the most significant chunks in the book of James um, it's kind of a hinge, it's kind of this hinge that we've been working up towards and it's going to kind of explode out and be the presupposition that is throughout the rest of the book. And so this, this passage in James is, is highly significant. Um, at times in the Christian faith it's been highly controversial. And so we're going to talk about that this morning, we're going to talk about it. And as we remember last week and as that we've talked through the book of James, the book of James is this book that says you need to check yourself uh, before you wreck yourself. And um, we see that all the time. Last week, we said, when you judge people, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself with your judgment and show mercy. And this week, we're going to see how James is saying, you need to check yourself with your faith and put that faith to works. Don't just have faith that does nothing and sits there and says, I believe in Jesus. Now I'm going to go home and uh, take a nap. Um, but it's going to be, I believe in Jesus, and because of this belief, because of what Christ has done in me, I'm going to go and serve my community, I'm going to love my neighbor, I'm going to serve the poor, I'm going to help the neglected. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so I just want to dive right into James chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, um, open up to James chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, it will be on the screen um, that uh, Dave got working again, so that's awesome. So James chapter 2, yeah, yeah, Dave. So James chapter 2 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was complete by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled saying that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by his works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, we just thank you for this day and we thank you for this time that we get to come and worship you and give you praise for bringing us from life to death. God, we thank you for the ways that you transform us in our hearts and the ways that you make us new and the way that you do not allow our faith to remain stagnant. Uh, But God, the way that you activate us, that you motivate us in places that we're not comfortable to go, places that we would never go on our own. But God, I just pray this morning that you would transform our hearts, that you would challenge us to go where we would never dream, that we would know that you are with us and that you are for us. 
and that you want to see your people brought from death to life. Lord, we love you and we thank you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we're going to talk about three different things. We're going to talk about one, uh, this big word that we use in Christianity, justification. So justification, that's point number one that we're going to talk about. Number two, we're going to talk about the will of God, how this justification moves us towards the will of God in our lives. And number three, we're going to talk about how faith risks and sacrifice greatly so that the will of God can be achieved. So that's where we're going this morning. Justification, will of God, risk and sacrifice. So if you're taking notes, sometimes it's not the most easy to track and take notes with. Hopefully today you'd be able to be like, boom, 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 there's the points. But we'll see how that goes. You can tell me afterwards. But um, So this morning we're going to start with justification. This, ju- this word justification means to, to be right, to be in right standing before God. How many have heard somebody say, I need to get right with God today, or I need to get right. I need to go to church and I need to get right. You know, I've been living my life in these ways, and I need to go and get right before God. And what they're talking about is this idea of justification. How can they justify themselves before God as a righteous person, as a good person, as a person that doesn't deserve damnation and condemnation? How can they do that? And a lot of times in our world we say, well, I need to get right with God. And so oftentimes when people say that, they mean that they need to go to church, that they need to start going to church, um, oftentimes it means that maybe they need to start praying, they need to start joining a small group, and then they say, okay, I've done these religious things, I've done these things that, that look good, um, I go to church, I pray, I go to a small group, um, I give, um, God, God must save me. Those things, those things make me a good person, that, that, those things justify me. And the thing is, is that we could read James this morning, we could hear him say, look, if you have faith, you have these works, and if you just do these works, then you're justified, you're made right before God. But I think that we'd be missing what James is talking about, and we'd be missing the whole point of the gospel. The whole point of the gospel is that we are justified in faith by Christ alone, and that the only work that makes us right before God, the only work that makes us right before God is the work of Jesus Christ. It's the work of Jesus Christ. And so that is the only way that we get right with God is that we go to Jesus. We say, Jesus, we throw ourselves onto him. And so if you came here this morning coming to church saying, I'm, I'm coming to church to get right with God, I'm glad that you're here. But coming to church is not going to get you right with God. Giving money to the, to the refugees is not going to get you right with God. The only thing that's going to get you right with God is by trusting in the work and power of Jesus Christ on the cross. As he gave his life up for you on your behalf, and you just running to him and saying, Lord, save us. Lord, save me. And that is how we are justified. And Paul talks about this. Paul talks about this. But first we will see that it looks like James and Paul are saying opposite things. So um, you want to put up the James passage real quick? So in James... In this passage in James, in James chapter 2, uh, verse 24, James says, A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Which that looks like it just contradicted everything I just said. Like, the only way that you're saved, the only way that you're made right before God is by throwing yourself on Jesus, not by coming to church, not by anything that you can achieve. But James just said, A person is justified by his works and not by faith alone. And if we go to Romans chapter 3, 28, we find that Paul says, that we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so Paul says, 
Nope, it's faith, not works that saves you. And you, at this point, if you're a skeptic, you're like, yes, the Bible contradicts itself. We found it. We found it. The Bible is contradicting itself, and I can't wait for this guy to try and explain how it's not. But I'm here to tell you that it's not. Even though these two passages look like they're in direct conflict of one another, Paul and James are speaking to two different groups of people in two different contexts that have two different types of needs. And so when Paul says to the people in Romans that they are justified by faith alone and not by their works, he's talking to a group of people that believe very firmly that their works are the things that make them right. They think that going to church, they think that giving, they think that um, the amount of money that they give, they think that the clothes that they wear, that all of these things are what makes them look good and right and pure before God. And James, not James, Paul is saying to these people, no, none of those things make you right before God. It is your faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves you. Now James, James is talking to an entirely different group of people. And the people that James is talking to, there are people who um, believe that the way to God is through mental assent. And so they believe that the way that you are holy, the way that you are righteous, is that you lock yourself in a closet and you meditate towards God. And the best way that you get to God is through continual meditation and that, that the world is actually essentially evil and corrupt. And the best way to achieve the spiritual, to to achieve the higher place, to achieve relationship with God, is to separate yourself as far as you can from the world around you. And so the idea of your faith doing any type of work is really foreign to these people because they're like, work is for the pagans. Work is for those who are not spiritual. Work is for those who are not religious. And so James is going to this group of people and he's saying, look, you claim to have faith, but yet you do nothing. You do absolutely nothing. Your faith in Jesus Christ needs to motivate you into action. You see, Paul was dealing with a completely different problem. His problem was that people were acting in hopes that their actions would allow them to be saved, to be justified before God. James' situation is completely different, where these people feel justified before God because they feel spiritual and holy and because they rest and they meditate and they pray all day, but yet they say to their neighbor that's in need, oh, go be fed, go be warm, and offer them no food and no clothing. And James is here this morning to challenge that, to say that if you have true faith, you would actually do something about it. And Paul would agree. Paul would agree. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, God will render to each one according to his works. Those who by patience and well-doing seek the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And so Paul and James are talking about the same thing. We are justified, we are made right before God through our faith in Jesus Christ. And this faith transforms us transforms our heart and moves us to a place to where we will do works because of our faith. But we don't do works to try and earn faith. That is what James and Paul are fighting against, is this idea that we could somehow, of our own works, of our own strength, of our own pride, be able to stand before a holy and mighty God and say, yep, God, we did these things, let me in. 
if that's your perspective, we're, you're doing it wrong this morning because that, that's not the way that the Bible says that it works. The Bible says, throw yourself on Jesus. The work of Jesus on the cross is the only way that we appear right before God, that we get right before him. And then this faith in him will cause you to work. It will cause you to go and sacrifice and live boldly for the kingdom of God. I have a parable of kind of three men this morning to, to illustrate this. Um, and this illustration isn't perfect with any illustration, but I hope that it really opens our eyes to maybe what James and Paul are getting at. And so the first man is a man, um, and, the, and the story is about three men that get flowers for their wives, okay? So this is, this is the premise of the story. Three men get flowers for their wives for three different reasons. The first man, um, him and his wife have not connected in a while, and he is frustrated, and he decides, you know, I think I'm going to get my wife flowers because that will probably increase the chances of us connecting tonight. And so he goes, he buys the wife flowers, he gets home. The wife has had an incredibly difficult day. She's worn out, she's tired, um, and she's really blessed by the flowers. She's really thankful that the husband went and bought flowers for her. Um, She's excited, Um, it, it brightens her day. But as the night goes on, she the husband decides, okay, it's time to like, try and connect with my wife. Um, and she, she notices him trying to make efforts to connect. And then she realizes that, oh, those flowers actually weren't for me. Those flowers were for you and for your selfish desires this morning. It, actually had, it never had me in mind in the first place. The second man goes um, in the morning. Him and his wife have a fight. There's conflict in the home, and they resolve the conflict before they leave for work. And the wife says, I've forgiven you, things are good, but the husband goes to work, and he's beating himself up all day about it. And he's like, all right, to make it right, I'm going to get some flowers. And he goes, and he gets the flowers, he gets a sorry card. He comes home, and he drops the flowers off to his wife, thinking, all right, this will be good. And the wife's like, why? why did you get me flowers? Well, because of this thing this morning. She's like, I thought we were good. I thought I'd forgiven you. I thought like things, things were good. Apparently things weren't good because you, thought, you felt like you needed to give me flowers to prove that, that you could be right before me. That you had to, to make it up in some way. When, when things were good. I didn't think about it all week, all day. But clearly this tormented you and you felt like you had to prove yourself to me by buying flowers. So that's the second man. The third man goes about his day and he thinks about his wife. And he thinks about how the gift of God is that he has brought them two together. And he thinks about how amazing that she is and how much he loves her. And just out of spontaneity and out of love and affection for his wife, he goes to the flower shop. He picks out her favorite flowers and she comes home and there are flowers there waiting for her. And she's excited and she's blessed and she's encouraged. And there's harmony and it's like, yes, yes, this is what buying flowers should look like. This is what buying flowers should look like. So, but, so that's our story. That's the story of the three men. So back to the first man. The first man has selfish intent with his wife. He goes, he's like, I want to connect. He buys these flowers. This man is the man that has faith, but has no works. Or if he has works, he's trying to leverage God in ways that are selfish so that he gets what he wants. And I think a lot of us approach our faith in this perspective. We say, God, I gave you this. Why is this bad thing happening in my life? God, I gave you this. I went to church. I prayed. 
Why are you not blessing me? Why are things not working out the way that I hoped they would? Because I did my part. Where's your part? And that's, that's a wrong way of looking at it. That's a wrong way of looking at it. James would go on to say that this faith, this type of faith that believes that we can leverage God, or this type of faith that we can say, God, we love you, but do nothing about it, is demonic. Not demonic in the possessive type, but demonic in the sense that the demons believe this. The demons believe that God is one, they believe that God is real, and they shudder. And so this faith is, is demonic in the sense that we, we have the same faith as the demons. If we just say, yep, God exists, and not do anything about it. Or even worse, say, God exists, and I'm going to leverage my faith to achieve my own agenda. I'm going to use God as a tool for me. This faith does not consider his neighbor, just as this man does not even consider his wife. Now the second man, the second man, they have the argument, things are good, she forgives him. And so she is just, he is justified before his wife. Forgiveness has come, love has come, the, the relationship has been restored, and he is justified, he is right before her. But he goes about his day and he believes, I've got to get her back. Or I don't know if I'm really right before her. And so I'm going to go get her flowers anyway. I'm going to try and justify myself before her just in case I wasn't actually forgiven. And so the, the gift comes and she's like, man, like, but I gave, you, I gave you forgiveness. I gave you grace. But yet you tried to prove it to me. You tried to earn it on yourself. It really kind of diminishes the grace and love that the wife just gave. And I think that a lot of us in our faith, we go out and we're like the second man. And we say, we know that God has saved us. We know that God has forgiven us. We know that we stand rightly before him. But we go out and say, man, I'm going to go do all these works for God because I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. And God's saying, look, what are you doing? I love you. I love you. And this is what Paul's saying to his audience. Look, the way that you're justified isn't through running around and doing all these works and self-righteousness, but it's through throwing yourself and and trusting in the forgiveness that Jesus gave on the cross. And you say, God, thank you. Thank you for this. And so that's, that's man number two. The third man is the man that is motivated by his faith. The third man is a man that, that by his love for his wife goes out and buys flowers and by his love and by his passion for her goes and does something about it. He doesn't just sit and say, oh man, my wife's really great, my wife's awesome um, and just keeps it to himself. No, he goes and he does something about it and he, he displays his love and affection for her by serving her in ways that encourage her. And this is the faith that James is talking about here. This is the, the faith that goes and does. It's the one that, that looks before an, aw, an awesome and almighty God and says, Man, you are incredible. You have forgiven me where there's conflict, where there's void. You have spread the gap that I couldn't cross on my own. And you've come into my life and you've transformed my life. You've transformed my life in a ways that were leading to death. And you've made me alive. And man, because of this gift, because of this transformation in my life, I'm going to go and I'm going to serve. 
And I'm going to let other people know that this transformation and this gift exists. And I want to see people transformed from death to life, just as our God has transformed me from death to life. And so you see this faith that we have that James is talking about is that it allows our selfish and our insecure and our broken hearts to be transformed by the grace and love of God. And this transformation is not superficial, but it changes us at the deepest levels in our heart. And it doesn't mean that we're never going to have a selfish desire. It doesn't mean that we're never going to sin. But it does mean that God's grace is going to grow in our heart like a seed. It's going to start small, and it's going to sprout, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow limbs, and it's going to get bigger. The God's grace is going to grow in our life. And, and one day it's going to produce fruit fruit for others to enjoy, fruit for others to be able to understand the love of God. And as we grow, our heart will become more and more attuned to the heart and the will of God. And it will be by His grace that we will be able to be enabled by our faith to go and serve others and obey Him. Romans chapter 12 says this about this transformation, 1 and 2, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Verse 2, this is, the, this is the kicker right here. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you might discern, discern what the will of God is, what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will. I want to focus on this second verse of Romans 12 for a second. This, do not be conformed, but be transformed. I think we read this verse, it's a very popular verse in Christianity, and we hear this command almost from Paul that says, be transformed. And so we go home and we're like, transform myself, transform myself. I need to be transformed. And we're like, well, what does this, tra- it looks like, I guess I'm going to have to do a bunch of stuff to maybe transform my life. But what we miss in the English translation of this verse is that the word transformed is actually in the passive voice. And so a little mini English lesson for us is that there's active voice in English language and there's passive voice in English language. Active voice is I hit the ball. I hit the ball. Or the idea is I am transforming. I am in control of the transformation. I am the one doing it. The passive voice is the ball hit me. The ball was the active thing that hit me that was passively sitting here. And so this, this word transformed, to be transformed is in the passive. It's something that hits you. It's something that happens onto you. It's something that you allow God to do onto yourself. For so long I read this verse and I was like, man, I've got to work really hard to become transformed. And then it was revealed to me that it's in the passive voice. Paul's saying, no. You just have to open yourself. You have to throw yourself on Jesus and allow Him to transform you, to allow Him to transform your life and your heart. And when He does that, you will, you will come to know His will. You will come to know the will of God. I think for a lot of us, we're like, what is the will of God? It would be really nice to know the will of God in my life right now, today. And I think the will of God is really simple, and I think it, it happens on a, a meta level. I think the will of God is all-inclusive for all people in all places and all time. And so if you're looking for God's will to tell you, like, do you buy this house or this house, that's not the type of will of God that I'm, I'm talking about this morning. But I'm talking about a will of God that will hopefully move us from death to life. From death to life. And so when we look at the Bible 
to, to understand this, when we look at the Bible, we have to look at the entire arc of the Bible to understand the will of God, I believe. And I believe the will of God begins at the beginning of the Bible. And so the beginning of the Bible begins in the garden, and there is life, life abundantly. But soon after that, we sin, we mess it up, we eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that brings death into our world. And so we're going to start here. We have death. And this is the starting point for that the God gets to work with, with the will of God. But then we go all the way to the end of the Bible and in Revelation, and we find that there are no more tears, there's no more night, and that God is making everything new, that He is bringing back to life all that is dead. And so the Bible ends with this place of life. And I believe that God's will is to move people, to move places, to move things. From this death to life. Just as God has come into my life and transformed me, just as he's transformed you, he's moved you from the state of death to the state of life. The book of Ephesians testifies to this, that while I was still dead, because of Christ's incredible love for us, he made us alive. He made us alive. And so we move from death to life. And I believe that this is the will of God for us, for our nation, for our neighbors, for the world. This this movement of death to life throughout all of history. Now the thing is, is that with death and life, I believe that there's also two other categories that we need to consider. And there's suffering. And then there's comfort. And then there's you. So the question is, where where do I fit in this death to life transition? And I think a lot of times what we hope happens is that God is going to move us from death to life, that God's going to come down, grab us up, move us to life, and then move us down to comfort. And life is going to be perfect. Life is going to be well. This is how the will of God is to work in our life. That He's going to go from death to you to life and that everything is going to be well with the world, that you are going to get to live a, lo- a life of luxury and of comfort. And I'm sorry, if this is what you believe the will of God is this morning, it, it's false. This is not the will of God. Because when you neglect suffering, you neglect the middle part of this will of God to move from death to life. You, move, you lose the transforming power of the cross. Because in the middle of this narrative of death to lifeness, you have the cross, and you have Jesus, and at the cross and at Jesus, you have nothing but suffering and risk-taking and sacrifice. And so here we have the cross, and in no way does the will of God get to move from death to life without intersecting the cross. And so the will of God actually goes like this. It goes from death, suffering, it grabs you along the way and moves you up to life. And there's no promise of comfort. There's no promise of of peace or of comfort um, in, the, in the sense of material wealth and the ways that we as humans look for comfort. Will there be comfort in Jesus? Yes. Will there be comfort in this life because he's the great counselor and he's the great comforter? Most definitely. But there will not be comfort in the ways that we tend to think about comfort. And I believe that this is the will of God and this is where God is moving us in our faith. That in our faith we are going to come and be intersected with the cross. And it's at the cross that we are going to suffer, that we're going to risk for our neighbors, and that we're going to sacrifice for them. In Romans, God calls us, 
Paul calls us, he says that if you are going to share in the glory and the life of God, you must also share in the suffering with Jesus. And so it's here at the cross that transforms us, that moves us from death to life, and that puts us on a trajectory of being within sync and in the will of God. And so if you're questioning this morning, where, where am I in the will of God? Am I a part of the will of God? My question to you is, where in your life do you see God moving that's bringing things from death to life? And what part are you playing in that? Are you seeking the cross? Are you seeking places and things where you can move things that are dying and move them towards life? And we'll be able to have some examples about that this morning. So we good. The will of God. Death to life. Death to life. And I know we want comfort. I know we want comfort. We want the comfort of just mental assent. And just be like, I know Jesus is good. I know God exists. Let me go about my merry way. Well, that's not the will of God. That's not the way of the cross. That's not the way of Jesus. And so, Paul calls us to look at two figures in the Old Testament Bible that risk and sacrifice. And these two figures are Abraham and Rahab. Abraham was a man that was living in a foreign land that worshipped idols with his father. And God came to Abraham and said, Come, follow me. I'm going to lead you to a new land, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Abraham decided to believe and have faith in God, and so he risked his relationships with his family. He sacrificed his relationships with his family, and he followed God into the desert, where God said, I will make a great nation out of you. And in this, in this place of suffering, God is actually moving Abraham from a place of death towards a place of life. The place of death was home. It was where the idols were. It's where his father was not worshiping the one true God. And God moves him to make a sacrifice. And then God calls him again to make an even greater sacrifice. In Abraham's old age, he has a son. He has an only son. And God told Abraham that he would make a great nation out of Abraham. And Abraham's like, great, okay, God, like, I've got one person to be in this nation. I don't, this, this doesn't look very great, one son. Um, I don't, I don't, like, and we begin to question, we begin to question, is, is God good? Is God going to come through? And God calls Abraham to go and sacrifice that son. Abraham had been like, God, I don't, I don't know what you're doing here because, like, what about our deal about this great nation thing? And, um, but Abraham says, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to go in faith. And he goes to sacrifice his son. And as he's about to do so, God tells him to stop. And God provides a sacrifice in place of his son Isaac. And, and he says, because you're willing to follow me, I know that you love me. I know that you believe in me. I know that you have faith. And that's what James is saying here is that because Abraham was willing to make great sacrifice and take great risk. He knew that the faith was genuine. He knew that the faith was real. He knew that it wasn't just a mental ascent for Abraham, that it wasn't just this idea of, well, I'll obey God when it's comfortable for me, or I will listen to God when it only benefits me. It was a complete surrender of acknowledging that God is king of our life, that God is king of this world, and it's following him even to this place of great risk and great sacrifice for God to be able to move a people, an entire people, from this place of death 
to life. Because from that place, Abraham's descendants then move forward, move forward into history, and we eventually get to Jesus that comes from this nation. And Jesus doesn't come to move just a nation from death to life, but he comes to move an entire people, an entire world from death to life. And that includes us. The next person that James refers to is Rahab. Rahab, in the book of Joshua, um, we just covered this um, in our last series, um, but it's been a couple months. In the book of Joshua, there's a woman, Rahab. She's a prostitute in Jericho. And the nation of Israel sends spies in to scout out Jericho because they're looking to destroy it. And these two spies show up at Rahab's door, and uh, they're being chased down. And Rahab invites them in, and she hides them in her home as the guards at Jericho come knock on her door, see if she has spies, but they're well hidden, and they leave, and the men were safe. The men were safe because of Rahab's faith. Rahab knew who these men were. She knew that they were from Israel. She knew that Israel had come to destroy them. She knows that she's committing treason right now. That if those men were to be caught in her apartment at that time, not only would have her life been sacrificed, but her entire family's life would have been sacrificed. But the one thing that Rahab knew is that that risk was worth it because her life was already dead. She knew that the men of Israel were coming and that judgment had fallen upon Jericho and that they were already dead. And so if she got caught with these men and died, she wouldn't have lost anything. But she knew that by harboring these men and by having faith in these men and the God that these men served, that maybe, just maybe, it would save her life. That just maybe this God would be able to have mercy and grace on her as well. And so she takes this incredible risk she takes this incredible sacrifice. And when the men come out of hiding, she asks, she's like, I know who you guys are. I know who your God is. You guys serve the God of heaven and earth, the God that's able to save. And then she boldly asks, would you please save me and my family as well? And the men said, yes, because of your faith, you'll be saved. And this is what James is saying. That her faith compelled her to do something incredibly risky, incredibly sacrificial. Her faith motivates her to risk her very life. And this is the faith that James is talking about. James is saying that our faith, by the grace of God, that true faith that will cause us to grow in grace, that's willing to boldly risk and sacrifice on behalf of our God and behalf of our neighbor. That our faith should be motivating us to risk and sacrifice on behalf of God and behalf of our neighbor. And the reality is that when this grace comes into our lives and when we are presented with an opportunity to give grace to another person, it will always cost us more initially than what we want to give. I think that's the nature of grace. I think that's the hard thing about giving grace to somebody is that it costs you more than what you naturally, humanistically want to give. Say a poor person comes up, you know of a poor family, and they need housing, and they come to you and they're like, can we, you know, or you go to them, you know, you're considering, do we give our house to these people? And the immediate thing that you want to do is what we talked about last week is judge them. You want to say, well, they made these economic decisions, they made these life choices, they kind of deserve the mess that they're in. And so I don't know why I would invite that mess into my house, 
And so you go on their merry way. Well, their life is still a mess. Their life still looks like death. And their life is in deep, incredible need of grace. But the reality of grace is that it's going to cost us something. The grace to save us, to save us, to bring us in right relationship with God, cost God his only son. And God invites us to share in him with that cost when we give grace and love to other people. And so just know that if you're going to go out and give grace, there's going to be a part of you that wants to not do it with all of your being because it's going to cost you more than what you're initially willing to sacrifice. And I say initially because I think once we step into the will of God, when we take that risk, when we make that sacrifice, when we see God's transforming power of His grace in people's lives, and we see people move from death to life, the reward is so much more than we could ever imagine. The reward is so much more than we ever could imagine. But just know that grace is going to cost because that's the, gray, that's the way grace works. And just know that there has been incredible cost paid for grace to be on you. That God doesn't look at you and say, well, you made these choices, you made these sins, you kind of deserve where you're at. Good luck. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. He doesn't judge those. He says, oh man, I'm here to love you. And I gave my son for you. And I'm here to bring you from the state of death. I know that you're going to constantly choose death. When we look into our world and we see death around and we see people making decisions towards death every day, we can't be surprised. We like look at the evil in the world and we're like, man, I can't believe everyone's so bad. But the Bible says that's, that's the way of our heart. I look at the world and when I see good, I'm like, man, I can't believe they're good. I can't believe that this goodness came. That's God at work. That's God moving people from death to life. And so the question this morning is, where is God leading you by his grace to risk and sacrifice boldly for the sake of his good and pleasing and perfect will? Where is he calling you to risk and sacrifice so that in your own life, you might be transformed from death to life. Are you currently in a live-in relationship that is killing you? Are you currently not married and, and living a cohabitating life that's not honoring to God and God's speaking into that and saying, look, I know it's a huge risk to separate. Into, it's a financial risk. It's a relational risk to separate. Um, we might not survive um, living apart until we're married, that might become really difficult. I understand. It's an incredible risk. That's what God is saying. He's not saying it's going to be easy. It's an incredible risk to make that move. But maybe, just maybe, in that move, you're taking a risk, you're taking a chance to honor God with your life in a way that, um, in the short term, this relationship, because it's in a place that doesn't honor God, might result in death. It might. God is able to redeem it. He might bring life, but it might also result in death and by being able to separate and to honor God in the ways that he's called us to do relationships. Maybe he's saving you from death that is imminent so that he might transform you to a life that is permanent, in a way that transforms you in ways that you never saw coming. But like I said, it's always going to cost us just a little bit more than we're willing to give. Maybe what we need to do, maybe God, to move us from death to life is to confess an addiction to 
um, a peer, to a friend, to an elder, to a deacon. And maybe you're in a place where that is going to be incredibly risky because you walk around with your life put together and no one would ever imagine that you struggled with that. And so you're going to have to risk your pride. You're going to have to risk your dignity. But what you're stuck in right now is killing you and no one knows. And God's saying, by His grace, by coming to Him, go and let your faith confide in somebody. Seek out accountability and let your life be transformed by the good and perfect and pleasing will of God that is going to move you from death to life. And then the second question is, is where is God, by His grace, wanting to use you to be an instrument of grace to our neighbors and calling our neighbors around us from death to life as well, just as we have been called? Is it to make a financial sacrifice this morning for the refugees? Is that where God is calling you to risk financially, to sacrifice financially for those that have nothing right now? Is that where God is calling us? Is he calling us to invite the poor to come live with you? Now, I know that these are some canned responses. Like These are like just the typical kind of canned questions. And so to make it just a little bit more personal, I want to ask, where is God specifically calling you to put your faith into action for the sake and the will of others, to see people's lives around you transformed from death to life? What is the number one injustice that you can't stand that's in your heart? What is the number one injustice that you see in the world that makes your blood boil, that makes you want to scream That can't continue to happen. What is that for you? What is the Facebook headline that you are willing to share because it makes you mad? Because it frustrates you? And then the next question is, is where can you become an administrator of God's grace in the middle of this injustice? How can you administer the gospel How can you become an agent capable of moving people from death to life in the middle of this injustice that's personal to you? How can you get involved? How can you begin to make a difference? How can you make a real difference in real people's lives that are really suffering? Because I think that's where it's at. If your issue is abortion, you can volunteer at CareNet. You can adopt. If you're If your thing is underprivileged children, school children, volunteer for an after-school program. Become involved in boys' and girls' clubs. Is it the hungry? Go door-to-door with your family doing a food drive. With my students at his house, we just grab shopping carts from cops. They let us take them. We just go door-to-door. We're like, hey, we're doing a food drive. Do you want to get some food for the hungry? Oh, sure. And we raised over... uh, 700 pounds of food, I think. And so just think, like, what you could do. How you could get involved with the injustices that speak to your heart, that make your blood boil. How could you be a part of this, taking a risk, making a sacrifice, and moving people from death to life? Not because you're capable of doing it, but because God is at work. Because God's grace and God's will is at work in your life, moving you from death to life and wanting to move the city of Madison from death to life and move your neighbors from death to life. Where can you step in? You see, it's time that we stop advocating for the kingdom of God and we begin advancing the kingdom of God. 
It's time for us to stop advocating the kingdom of God on our Facebook and our tweets, and it's time that we begin advancing it and actually start doing it, that we allow our faith in God to go do something. And this action, this, this movement from faith to life, I, I want to tell you, I want to let you in a little secret, it's not going to happen politically. It's just not going to happen politically. But it's going to happen with real people, with real names, with real stories, with real sufferings that are experiencing real death, that need to experience real grace and real life. And God is calling us as a church, as an individual, as a body, to go and be that for his people. And that's what James is talking about this morning. That's what James is talking about. And so we do not give because we are rich. We do not give because we are fully capable, as Beth said this morning. We give because we serve a Father that is capable. And we serve a Father that is rich. And that we have a community of people that when we come together, we are able to do incredible things for one another and for the kingdom. And we get to make a real difference in real people's lives that move them towards the will of God that moves them from death to life. And so as we continue in worship this morning... I want us to, number one, just worship the awesomeness of our God and the incredible grace that he has poured out on our life because that is awesome and it is worthy of all praise. And it's only from that place then that we will be able to, with a right heart and with a right mind and a right spirit, go and serve and make a difference in our community. Because if we get this backwards, we become like the man that buys the flowers for the wrong reasons. And we want to be like the third man. We want to be the third man that goes and does because of the incredible awesomeness and love that we have for the Father. That's what James is encouraging us to do. And I just want to encourage you as you go to worship God and then ask God, where can I get involved in the number one injustice that is personal to me? And how can I bring God's will into this? And how can we see God begin to transform our neighbors and the lives around us from death to life?